Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. I want my cake, want to eat it too. I want the stars and the silver moon. I spend my money on lottery. My favorite number is one, two, three. You see, I want money, lots and lots of money. I want the pie in the sky. I want money, lots and lots of money. So don't be asking me why. I want to be rich. Oh, I want to be rich. Oh, oh, I want to be rich. Oh, I want to be rich for a little love, peace, and happiness. Yes, we all want those dollar dollar bills, y'all, but wow, they're getting harder and harder to come by, aren't they? What we really need are more churches preaching about how the point of the Christian life is health and, most importantly, wealth and prosperity, because with enough wealth, you can buy health. I mean, just look to Washington, D.C. if you don't believe me. Uh, Well, on second thought, there are already so many churches teaching the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, which really doesn't work because it's literally not part of the Bible or the gospel or a Christian church. No, what we need are solutions. If we're going to be rich in our current Bidenomic world of delusion and poverty, we're going to need to think outside the box. On today's episode, first we're going to learn how to use our own money in order to have money, and then we'll rethink that whole silly idea and see how we can use somebody else's money and just make it become our money. And after the bumper, my goal update. And you know what I'm missing? A goal to become filthy rich. I'll have to add that in for next year. And after this episode, I think I may now just have the tools I need to make that happen. So, go grab your Dave Ramsey monthly budget form. You're going to need to make some adjustments and start rethinking your current voter registration and or party affiliation. Keep in mind that it's all about the Benjamins' baby. And now, without further moolah, here we go. We live in a world of content. Media-based content. What you're listening to right now is content. I'm honestly surprised that anyone but family and friends that I told about this podcast, not even all of them, actually listen to this. According to one source, there are over 5 million podcasts in the world today. Then add in traditional video-based media, streaming media, print media, social media, internet written media. There's just more content out there than anyone could ever hope to keep up with. This is why we have lists. We can make playlists on YouTube or add things to our watch list queue. We add shows or movies to our favorites in Netflix, Disney Plus, or Amazon video accounts. We have wish lists on shopping sites of Amazon and Walmart. VCRs allowed us to watch something again or later. And now DVRs, either physical or internet-based, allow us to stack up hundreds or thousands of hours of content that we can watch later. Every internet browser has the ability to save favorites and organize those favorites into groups and folders, as well as open multiple tabs and group those tabs. I take screenshots of news stories that sound like potentially interesting podcast topics. As of right now, I have almost 700 screenshots in my news folder on my phone. I'd say that probably 99% of those won't see the light of day, because by next week, I've added another dozen or two dozen or who knows. 
So with all the content, with all the content creators, reporters, editorialists, and influencers, literally nearly every topic has been covered from nearly every angle you could think of by now. And yet, if these creators want to stay employed, they must create more content and hope that someone will read, watch, click, or buy their material. And the problem is that when you get this much stuff out there, the odds are getting higher that you'll choose or be assigned to create content that's meant to be serious, but is really kind of pointless. Or at least for most of us, it is or, or it should be pointless. Starting on GoBankingRates via MSN.com headline, I saved $800 a month by changing these four spending behaviors. So who wouldn't mind $800 a month? And only four things to do in order to save that sweet, sweet cash. That's darn near $200 per thing per month, if my math adds up. So the article starts by setting up the premise. If your monthly expenses are spiraling out of control, or your savings are stagnant, or worse, they're shrinking, well, they've got good news for you. One Ms. Kimani Woods stated to be the communications manager at TimeWise Financial, evaluated and changed the way she did things with her money, and she saved $800 a month. Now, the first thing that they didn't do, maybe the first question you had, something they should have done, is started with something about her salary or her income. I mean, if you make, say, $20,000 a year, then saving $9,600 in that year would have a massive impact. If you make a half a million a year, well, I mean, look, I wouldn't even think about sneezing at $10,000. I'd snatch that up quick, fast, and in a hurry. But if that constitutes a percent or two or less of your salary or your net worth, well, then this isn't quite as impressive. So what are we talking about from Ms. Woods? Well, I don't really know exactly, obviously, but according to Glassdoor.com, which is a resource for those looking into various careers, the average salary for a communications director is about $87,000 a year. If you look on Salary.com, specifically for TimeWise Financial reported salaries, it appears that the manager level, and it did not have communications manager specifically, but the manager level had an average of right around $90,000 a year. So, Let's just say she makes $90,000 per year. It just lets us work with some easy numbers. That would make saving $800 a month or $9,600 a year, just over 10.5% of her gross income. Definitely worth looking into, right? So what did she do? What were her discoveries, her revelations, as it were? Well, first, quote, I reevaluated the things I spend money on. Huh. Says Ms. Woods, quote, I thought about my life and what I enjoy doing the most and prioritized those things by cutting out the extra. For example, I enjoy traveling, so I make sure I have money saved to travel every year. Now, the guidance given is that if you'd like to save that $800 a month, you'll need to look at what you're currently spending money on and then maybe cut out some of those monthly expenses that you don't want as much as something else, like cut out a streaming service or that other entertainment or the food or the medicine. No, they didn't say those last things. I'm just trying to think outside the box here. Secondly, quote, I reevaluated who's worth my time and money. Okay, this one is exactly what it sounds like. She literally analyzed her personal relationships and how much of her time, and most importantly, that sweet, sweet cash she was spending on them or to hang out with them, 
She, quote, realized that she was spending a substantial amount of money each month on people who wouldn't even be there for her in times of trouble. Ms. Woods says, quote, I decided these aren't the types of relationships I want to invest a ton of money or time into anymore. Now, if I'm spending money to hang out with you, we need to have a genuine relationship or bond. Now, admittedly, she now spends more time alone, but apparently she doesn't mind and, quote, appreciates her own company. So look, I'd agree that there are likely group activities that cost money that you may not need to do. There may also be people that are more surface friends and you just do things because you want to do something or you're experiencing, you know, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. But the way they state this, it's more of a quid pro quo type situation. You know, I'll be your friend, but only if I've determined that you're able to meet my needs if and when I deem it necessary. Now, I guarantee that Ms. Woods spends more time alone because as word moved around within her circle of eh, friends, ex-friends, whatever, I'm sure her general reputation took a nosedive. I know that I want to be friends with someone that evaluates me based on my potential value in certain situations. Third, quote, I stopped eating out so much. So, Ms. Woods has some great tips that you're just going to kick yourself for not thinking of here. First, plan your meals. If you have a plan of what meals you're going to make through the next week, it'll make your grocery shopping more focused. Otherwise, I guess it's just kind of like supermarket sweep where you're just running through the aisles, raking your arm across the shelves to load your cart to overflowing. That's apparently the suboptimal way to shop. You know, the way that we all do it. Next, buy in bulk. If you get larger quantities of things, boom, savings. They give a great Pro tip, though, only do this with non-perishable items. Are you writing this down? Not like fruit. Uh, let me throw my two cents in here. If you're really trying to be cost conscious, double check the price per whatever, ounce or whatever it is, count, because I have come across a few things in the past where the larger size product was actually a worse deal than the next size down. It doesn't normally happen, but it has and it can. Uh, next, you can use coupons and store loyalty programs. Now, I don't do coupons, except for some electronic coupons I can clip and link to my Kroger card, but I can't imagine why people wouldn't either use coupons or store member cards or both. I mean, the prices have clearly and obviously been jacked up to the point that you must do that in order to bring the prices back into something reasonable. Okay, and her fourth point or tip or revelation, quote, I shifted my mindset around money. So Ms. Woods stopped viewing money as something to burn through as quickly as possible. It actually said that, you know, like you and I do, and decided that saving money and investing for the future was a better idea. There are even some fun challenges that they give us, you know, that we can do if we just really want. Uh, the no spend challenge. I mean, how much fun does that sound, right? It simply means that for a period of time, you just don't spend money on non-essentials. This is literally one of my personal favorites. I mean, I play this game every single night from about midnight to about seven in the morning. I just openly refuse to spend on non-essentials during that period of time almost every day. Now, there's also the cash-only challenge. Okay, this one's going to get a little bit more tricky when the government takes cash out of the system and, you know, forces us to all use their new digital dollar. 
And they're only doing that for convenience, not because they've destroyed the economy and because they can then force you into what they determine is socially acceptable action and speech, that sort of thing. Finally, the Roundup Challenge. Now, this is best done with an app that will take your purchases, round up to the next dollar, and drop those pennies into an account or invest them in stocks or something. I'll just say this. This sounds like an easy idea, and it makes balancing the checkbook if anyone does that anymore, much easier. But it's been proven that it does virtually nothing. You're not going to get rich or really save much of anything by rounding up. But, I mean, do it if you want, right? Now, they give one final tip on this one, not one of Ms. Wood's four, but still an okay idea, at least in concept. Quote, pens ready, quote, spend less than you earn. Here, I'll say that again, just in case you didn't catch that. Quote, Spend less than you earn. They state this, and you, you may want to jot the rest of this nugget of wisdom down here, you know, so you can ponder it later and share it with others. Quote, if you are able to spend less than you earn each month, it's almost impossible not to see your savings account numbers go up. And I just got to ask, almost? What, what is the caveat to this? See, saving money, whether it's a few dollars or hundreds of dollars, comes down to common sense. Know what you're spending on, make a plan, spend less than you earn. That's literally it. It's not really that tricky. Why was there an entire article on this? And why would Ms. Woods think anyone would need her so-called wisdom on this? We'll come back to that question in a few minutes. Next, I want to hit another fully wisdom-chocked article found on CNBC.com. Headline, if you use any of these nine phrases, you have better etiquette skills than most. Public speaking expert. Mr. John Bow or Bowie, is a public speaking expert, which is a thing you can choose to be, apparently. And he knows that you can come off as offensive to people if you're not careful, like most of these sloped forehead Neanderthals out there. Now, he didn't say that part, but he was most assuredly thinking it. So what phrases will clear things up and be non-offensive and put you on the same etiquette road as Mr. Bow? Well, first phrase, quote, what I'm hearing you say is... Now, this expert says that this is so you can ensure you understood what was said and it helps to ensure the speaker was clear about what he or she said. To me, this is kind of an infuriating statement. It's very pretentious. I know what I said. You know what I said. Let's not play games here, okay? But okay, I guess the premise is solid enough. Make sure the communication is clear prior to responding or losing your mind. Can you just imagine a conversation where everyone involved used this phrase and repeats what was just said just all of the time? I mean, I, I would just leave. Second phrase, you may be right. This is apparently a way to kind of disarm a disagreement. You can either use this followed by, but, and then state your viewpoint, or, quote, it's also helpful for responding to off-topic comments and remarks from hyperactive colleagues who talk too much. No one likes to be negated, and a simple affirmation allows conversations to proceed without disharmony. That's just a nice way of saying you can dismiss and shut someone up at the same time. It kind of goes with the third phrase, quote, you were right, I was wrong. He calls this the, quote, gold star of conversational selflessness, because you can't say this without meaning it, <clears throat> and people love to hear this, 
He says, quote, it is a great tool for diffusing tension, clearing the slate, and earning respect. Surrender your ego to win the bigger fight for more productive, authentic relationships. Now, what follows may be a shocking statement. I absolutely believe in admitting your mistakes, in admitting when you're wrong. I don't like to do it, but I totally believe in it. And I don't do it just to earn a gold star. I simply do it because if it's true, it's true. I tend to play devil's advocate in conversations. I tend to argue for my worldview or my beliefs, and I will do so fairly aggressively. However, I am always open to being wrong. I've mentioned this before, but the reason I read the books I do, I listen to the podcasts I do and read the news, etc., etc., is simply because I want to be right about absolutely everything. At the same time, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm not right about absolutely everything, and the only way I can be more right today than I was yesterday is to argue my point while listening and being open to other views. But as I've told multiple people in the past, don't tell me I'm wrong because you have a different opinion, or you don't like what I have to say, or you feel like I'm wrong. Come at me with facts that contradict my point. I will never just dismiss that out of hand, especially if it's something I haven't heard before, an angle I hadn't considered. And if I'm wrong, I'll fully admit that I was wrong. I find nothing humiliating by admitting I was wrong. You're right if that's where the facts lie. To me, that's not a weakness. It's a sign of strength to be able to admit when you're wrong. Moving on to phrase four, quote, thank you for doing this. Now, I had to scroll back up and look at the title of the article on this thing. Uh, better etiquette skills than most if you exhibit the most base form of politeness and respect, I guess. Hmm. The fifth phrase, quote, I'll leave you to it. He states that this is a way to overcome your impulse to control. He says to say it like you mean it and do it with a smile. Now, look, I get the impulse to control. I, I see someone doing something and I offer the right way to do it. Thank you very much. And yes, this is a lesson that every parent should learn and likely struggles to learn. You need to let kids figure things out sometimes. And sometimes that means you'll be cleaning up something or fixing something later. That said, this phrase can be used in a few different ways. It can be used seriously or my favorite way, sarcastically. My preference, like I said, sarcasm is, uh, you know, is, is better. It's more fun for me. And, and yes, I'll, I'll smile when I say it. Phrase the sixth. Quote, can you help me with something? Now, you may think this is because most of us have that feeling that we can do it on our own. I mean, unless you're a weak, pathetic flower, then you, <laughs> you need to use that phrase just all the time. So if I piece together what I've learned so far, if you come to me and say, can you help me with something? If I want to be an etiquette expert, I should say, quote, I'll leave you to it. Am I getting this? Is that right? No? Not? Hmm. Well, you may be right. <laughs> See what I did there? Anyway, no, that's not what he means by using this phrase. In fact, he's looking at it from the opposite direction, not the humility of the asker, but the emotional state of the one being asked. He says that people don't like to be told to do something, you know, just ordered about. People like to be asked. So don't tell someone, you know, like the kid, to take out the garbage. Say, quote, hey, I'm overwhelmed. Can I ask you to help me by taking out the garbage? Now, I'll be honest. I'll likely lose etiquette points on this one. I'm not doing that. Moving on, phrase number seven. Quote, your, and then fill in the blank, you know, like hair or shirt or tie, looks so nice today, exclamation point. And don't forget to use the word so in there, so nice. He says not to lie, but to look for the good. People like compliments. 
And that's true. But this point kind of feels like it was written from a very deep personal perspective. You know, quote, we're all aging. We're all stressed. We all worry that we forgot something about our appearance. It's nice to hear that we did something right once in a while. You don't think our expert, Mr. Bo, wrote this entire article just to fish for a compliment or two, do you? Nah. Seriously, though, he says that everyone likes compliments even if they act like they don't. Now, I'd say this is likely true. I believe I mentioned this before also, but one of my top love languages, according to the totally legitimate test, is words of affirmation. But I'm an introvert and don't like to be the center of attention of anything if I can help it. So this puts me in the position of wanting someone to tell me I'm a good boy, but I don't want to be recognized for anything good or bad. And if you do tell me, I have no idea what to do with it. So I usually just scream and run away. That's enough about me. Moving on. Phrase eight. Quote, that's interesting. Okay. He's just taunting me now. This is no different than, quote, I'll leave you to it. It can be said two ways. I'll smile either way, I promise. One way I'm intrigued. Oh, that's interesting. The other way I'm a jerk. Oh, it's interesting. But seeing as though it doesn't appear that experts in etiquette understand the subtleties of sarcasm, he's saying that this is a way of acknowledging the speaker. Quote, a bow to the speaker of sorts. And phrase nine. No, oh, sorry. I, I took this as a, as a direction. Number nine is apparently, quote, say nothing at all. And uh, I've got to agree with this, although you'd be shocked to know that I don't utilize this etiquette technique as often as I, as I probably should. He says that if someone is being rude or ignorant, just remember the power of, quote, I'm rubber and you're glue. And then he says, quote, be rubber, take a deep breath, chalk the words up as somebody else's issue and walk away. But correct me if I'm wrong, the actual power of the rubber and glue phrase is to say the rubber and glue phrase, which ends with, quote, whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you, which quite effectively wins an argument by putting the rude person right in their place. Now that you've deflected their insult and slapped it back on them, there's no possible defense they could ever muster. Nothing else could be said. You simply win. But he's saying, just to think it in your mind, I, I guess, which defeats the whole purpose of the rubber and glue thing. I don't know. The guy's an idiot. I mean, what what a dope. Just look at his tie. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> ah, no, I'm failing here. Okay. Give me one more shot. Let me try this. Okay. You say, can you help me move this couch? It's really heavy. Oh, come on. Say it. Play along here now. You say, can you help me move this couch? It's really heavy. Okay. Now to use my newfound expertise in etiquette to craft my response. <clears throat> What I'm hearing you say is that the couch is too heavy for one person to move. That's interesting. You may be right. Well, I'll leave you to it. Oh, by the by, the sweat dripping down your very angry-looking face looks so nice today. <laughs> Nailed it. Okay, of course I'm joking around here, but the question is, why in the world would I spend this much time reviewing articles of what most of us would consider to be common sense? I mean, sure, there were probably a few things you hadn't thought of, but for the most part, I'm guessing most of us weren't really pausing this podcast running to get the pen and paper to jot down these pro tips for living life. You want to save money? Make a budget, cut out the garbage, spend less than you make. You want to carry on an adult conversation? Be polite, be respectful, speak to be understood, strive for understanding, and sometimes shut up. I mean, it's really pretty much that simple. Here's the thing. 
What I guess most of us consider to be common sense at the base level, it just isn't anymore, or at least it's fading fast. And if you are someone that heard these tips and really felt like they were earth shattering, don't feel bad because apparently you're really not alone. Found on Fortune via finance.yahoo.com headline, Gen Z can't work alongside people with different views because they haven't got the skills to disagree, says British TV boss. Alex Mahon is the CEO of the British public broadcast television station Channel 4. She was previously the CEO of a 21st Century Fox production company named Shine Group, and then she was CEO of the visual effects software company named Foundry, so she seems to at least know business. She was quoted as saying, quote, what we are seeing with young people who come into the workplace, Gen Z, particularly post-pandemic, and with this concentration of short-form content, is that they haven't got the skills to debate things. They haven't got the skills to discuss things. They haven't got the skills to disagree. She further said that they're seeing a really dangerous step change in their ability to constructively disagree with others to, quote, hold down a heated discussion. She places the blame for the sudden shift on social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram and their 30 to 60 second short form content, as well as the pandemic lockdown actions, you know, kids being out of college, away from others with differing opinions, limiting personal interactions to Zoom calls and studying alone. Along with this, a recent poll found that 25% of Gen Z respondents have, quote, very little tolerance for people with beliefs I disagree with, and nearly half believe that some people deserve to be canceled. Mahon isn't the only one seeing this. Many companies and consulting firms, as well as colleges, are seeing a definite gap or a lack in social skills. Michigan State University, for example, is giving their graduates networking conversation lessons, quote, including how to look for signs that the other party is starting to get bored and that it's time to move on, as well as asking hiring companies to have very specific guidance for new hires on their first day, what to wear, where to get lunch, etc., etc. Miami University goes, I think, a step further. They, quote, organized a dinner with senior leaders in order to teach proper mealtime etiquette, such as how to engage in conversation on neutral topics. As for the students and graduates, they see the gap as well. Although they're much more able to work independently, or at least on their own, they are expressing concern about not knowing how to work with others or how to deliver presentations in person rather than through a screen. They're also finding working in an office setting around people is draining and employers are more demanding than college professors. That said, there seems to be a disconnect as to what's most important or what aspects of their career is lacking the most. Found on Business Insider via MSN.com headline, Gen Z are more concerned by getting better at their actual jobs than they are with improving the office soft skills their bosses say they lack, survey finds. So a survey was recently conducted by Adobe and found that about half of Gen Z workers want more training on hard skills, that is the skills specifically related to their job. Only a third feel they need to work on soft skills, such as communication or interaction. An Adobe spokesperson said that they were very clear in the questions, quote, hard skills refer to job-related or technical knowledge and abilities, while soft skills were classed as interpersonal skills and traits that shape how you work. The study surveyed 1,000 Gen Z workers that have been employed with medium to large companies for up to three years. Now, these are what I would call 
newbies. If you've been in the workforce any time, well, I mean, I can speak for the last 20 plus years, about the first real opportunity you get to move to a new company with any sort of experience is after you've been employed in your field for three years. Five years is better. Seven to 10 years seems to be about ideal. And then you start to plateau. And now where I am, <laughs> I mean, if I'm not on the downhill side of desirability yet, I'm getting close. Now, this article paints a slightly different picture than the previous, saying that Gen Z is just getting a bad rap, that it's not so much that they don't care about communication skills, it's that they just want to do their job and do it better, or at least get the skills needed to do whatever they need to do to advance their career. Now, I find the results kind of funny because from my perspective, at my age, you know, I kind of envision the 1950s and 60s and up through when I started in the real world of work in the early 2000s as being a time when you got to work. You, you just you just did your job. You worked, you know, and then you learned your job. You improved your skills and then you did your job better than the next guy. And either you moved up inside that company or you find a company that wants your skills even more than the one you're currently at. But looking back, I guess I can see the progression from, you know, learn all the skills you can and be better at your job than others to a more touchy-feely workplace. And that is where employers appear to be today. They, they don't want these grouchy, introverted recluses that were geniuses in their field. They would much rather have people with a team mentality that can do the job good enough, or at least that's what it seems. The survey found that 70% of Gen Zers want to climb that corporate ladder, but the employers are seeing major issues with communication and interpersonal skills. Again, these companies are citing the lockdowns associated with the so-called pandemic of totally natural yet unknown origins that shan't be named here as being the major step change in the decline in personal skills. Admittedly, I can't identify with these ladder climbers, as that's never been me. I'm a firm believer in the Peter Principle and do not want to be a Peter Principle statistic. If you've never heard of the Peter Principle, briefly summarized, it's the tendency of employers to promote someone to a level of incompetence. In other words, you keep promoting someone until they get into a role that they simply can't do, and then they either stagnate and die there, or they're just, you know, downsized at the first available opportunity. Personally, I'd rather have my employer come to me with opportunities to advance and move up which I generally have declined in the past because I like what I do. I do it well. People like me in the position I'm in. I feel like I'm making a large contribution and I'm okay knowing that by not advancing, I'm limiting myself and my salary potential or whatever. But for those that want to advance, that's generally going to mean that you are moving into and up through management roles, meaning you're going to have to learn how to disagree and communicate, instruct, and generally interact with people. And that's the problem, says Jackie Henry, Deloitte's UK, quote, managing partner for people and purpose. If that isn't a made up title for our current era, she said, quote, this means that there is a greater need for employers to provide training on basic professional and working skills that wasn't necessary in prior years. And the article states that other companies are having to teach their Gen Z new hires, quote, how to send emails, what to wear in the office and how to maintain the appropriate level of eye contact during a conversation. Now, I can tell you that very recently, I saw this exact thing play out in my place of employment. We had a new hire, fresh out of college, boisterous young man with an obvious lack of self-awareness. He was very personable, but he decided from the start that the boss and he were besties. 
He saw co-workers that have worked together and known each other for years, having personal conversations, joking and laughing, but failed to see that there was actual work that was mixed in there. So he would stand in the boss's door, spending way too much time just being besties. He saw people leaving early, taking days off, but he failed to realize that those people either took vacation time or they had worked many extra hours on other days. So he decided that if the office was mostly emptied out on a Friday, well, he might as well head on home too, without taking any vacation time, without having any time accrued, without telling anyone. And about two months into his first real job out of college, about two days after the boss had a serious conversation with him about how he's expected to work 40 hours a week and to clear it with her if he's going to be taking time off, he put in his two weeks notice. Now, when I spoke with him prior to him leaving, he didn't have a job lined up. He had a couple possible places he was thinking of applying to, and if nothing else, he'd just go back to grad school. He said that he wasn't really interested in staying in college, but now that he's been out for a little bit, he's thinking he might want to, you know, go back in, just for a little while still. And he's probably right. He probably doesn't have the skills necessary to get out into the real world yet. Sadly, grad school isn't going to give him those skills either, and if that's the path he chooses, he'll be just as unprepared as he is now. So what's going on here? Well, I mean, there are likely a number of things in play. Electronic devices, for sure, right? Short-form content like TikTok and YouTube Shorts, Reels and Snapchat, those play their part. But just the fact that so much interaction is done through electronic devices definitely factors into the issues seen, and that's made worse by the type of interaction we have, which is mainly through text or snapped photos or even video chats like FaceTime, where I've seen my kid with her phone pointing at nothing while she's FaceTiming someone. I mean, what is the point of that? So although I do agree that electronic devices can be problematic, as I've said in a previous episode, everyone around my generation wants to pile on to the electronics and just blame them for everything that we've decided is an issue with the kids these days. But throughout all of history, various advancements have been made that have shifted the way we act and interact as humans. Electronics aren't the problem. I think the larger problem is that we're more focused on blaming them rather than figuring out how to use them and teach the kids how to use them safely and effectively. To think they're going away, to think that we're going to pass a law that you must be this old and this tall in order to use a device is ridiculous on its face. Although it can contribute to what we're seeing, the issue I believe is deeper than that. What we're seeing is that the first two no-duh articles are actually useful and necessary. There's actually more duh, then no duh in our society today. Now, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I'm just stating that by way of illustration. I don't know what the click rate is for these articles specifically or the read-through percentage, but there is no question that there is a high level of ignorance prevalent in the younger generations, especially to the point that how to save money and how to talk to humans are legitimately needed instructions. But why? So I maintain that there are two main and somewhat related issues that are causing the problems that we're just now starting to see manifest in the workplace. I think what we're seeing is a breakdown in the familial structure as well as the faith-based structure. And I say this knowing that I failed on multiple fronts in both of these major areas, and I just thank God that my kid has seemingly pulled out or is pulling out the other side of the mess that I created for her, largely, but not entirely unscathed. So let me touch on these two areas. I'll be as 
brief as I can. I don't think an exhaustive discussion is needed here. I just want to throw down some things to think about and let you ponder it from there. Uh, If you have younger kids or you're looking to have children in the future, this may give you more food for thought than maybe some others. But I think we would all do well to think about what we can do to help this situation. On the family side of things, the lack of conversations, not eating together, not praying or studying the Bible together, letting the TV work as the babysitter, two-income households, which unfortunately are not only common these days, but necessary in many, if not most cases, preschools, divorces and single-parent households, large houses where interaction can be avoided, exhaustion from over-exerting ourselves, overextending ourselves in whatever we're doing. The constant drive in both work and pleasure to keep up with the Joneses, and the list goes on and on. Many things that existed or didn't exist or were or weren't done in the past just simply aren't the norm anymore. Without these passive or active interactions, a lot of the interpersonal and communication skills that were just kind of passed from generation to generation and developed, they simply aren't anymore. The Bible places a very high value on the family. And why wouldn't it? The family was created by God. The child was specifically created for the parents. The father was designed to work, provide, and protect. The mother was designed to nurture, care, and tend. Both equally important, but clearly different roles. Both equally created by God. The family was designed to raise the child in all things, life and godliness. Even more so, the family was designed to give an earthly, somewhat fuzzy picture of our family as children of God. Moving into churches, a lot of churches, and especially a lot of those that have large groups of children or are trying to build their children's department so that, you know, the church doesn't age out and disappear, well, those aren't any better. Gone are the days of Bible drills, memorization, everyone taking part in reading scripture in these children's groups. There just isn't any time with the mindless songs that they term as worship. The silly games and activities and whatever video-based lessons are presented by some goofball who thinks he's funny, but he's not. He's more dangerous than anything. Kids aren't encouraged to ask questions, to think deeply. Rather, we give them the same 50-ish lessons year after year, given in the most simplistic way possible, because we can't let anyone feel like they're not able to keep up. Then we wake them up and hand them a coloring sheet, check our watches, and mercifully send them up to big church for about 20 minutes until we bring them back down to children's church to do the same basic thing again. Moving into big church isn't much better. More emotionally rich, content-poor, theology-absent songs, more silly presentations and messages that are meant to entertain and get you to bring a friend rather than make you think or learn. We must have presentation slides, video clips, props, and stunts, as well as silly themes and TED Talk-type topics to try to keep the attention of the goldfish that are swimming around in the pews. Nothing too deep, no matter how much the speaker leans in or whispers, I hesitate to call many of them pastors. We don't want people to have to think and reason. Just absorb the emotion of it, not the content, so that by the time your hand touches the handle of your car door, the message is long gone, but the emotional feel of it lingers as well as the chorus of seven words that you just sang 40 times in a row. Hey, how was church today? Oh, I felt so blessed. I just really felt God's presence. Oh, what did the pastor talk about today? Oh, Oh, I, uh, I think it was uh, something, something about Jesus, maybe? <laughs> and that's if we attend or make our children attend church. I mean, church attendance is dropping steadily every year as more and more people simply choose to not believe anything. 
Or maybe we just do online church in our jammies, you know, because it's church. But the Bible is clear. A major role of the church is community. And no, I'm not talking about going out into the community to paint or pay for someone in the drive through lane or whatever. I mean, those are fine, although really nothing but seeker-sensitive tactics to try to get more butts in the seats. No, I'm talking about the body of the church, the congregation. That's the community the Bible tells us to live in. It's friendships. It's tolerance of those you disagree with. It's discussing theology. It's discussing the sermon that was just preached. It's discussing the business of the church. It's hanging out after the service to mingle. It's sitting and eating meals together. It's interacting with others, getting to know many, some on a deep personal level so that brother can come alongside brother, so iron can sharpen iron, so the body can help with the children, help with the aged, help with those that have illnesses or disabilities, comfort those who are mourning, and assist those in need. We, as a society, as what once was a heavily Christian-based or the very least Christian-influenced nation, we've, we've slid into a sort of malaise of our own making. We've lazily and neglectfully allowed the government to come in and tell us how things should be or can be, and, and that's fine. I'm sure they have our best interests at heart right? We're tired, we're stressed, we're anxious, we're depressed, and surely someone else can fight these battles. All the while, we're neglecting one of the most precious, if not the most precious gift God has given us on earth, our children. And now, after a few generations of sliding down the slope, we find ourselves at a point where articles saying we should be polite and we shouldn't spend more money than we make are commonplace, and sadly, they're needed. So what do you and I do? Well, as it always does, it comes down to managing our little circle of influence. From the no-duh camp, obviously we pray, we seek God's guidance, protection, and restoration. Make sure you're in a good church. I know that many pastors and teachers caution heavily that you shouldn't leave your church frivolously, and I totally agree with that. However, that said, if you're in a church that isn't acting as a church, maybe it doesn't need to be a church. You can leave. Find a solid church that's not only theologically rich, but a community as well. From a familial standpoint, if you have older children, well, it's never too late to start making a change. These new hired Gen Z workers didn't plunge in social skills because of the lockdowns. Those definitely didn't help, but they were already quite obviously heading in that direction. The lockdowns may have just given it a slight nudge. So if you have older children... Well, they need you to step up and do whatever you can, whatever you can, while you can. If you have younger children, start now. Find ways to teach social skills. Teach them how to interact with you and each other and others. Teach them how to hold a conversation, how to think. If you don't have children yet, make a plan. And let me stress, I think I've heard every young parent or future parent these days say the same thing. Oh, I won't let my kid have a phone until they're... And then fill in the blank with an age. And maybe, right? But please make a backup plan on how to let your kid have that phone at a much earlier age than you thought you would, just in case. Some parents will actually follow through. Most of us will cave. And it's not getting any easier. So have a plan how to use electronic devices, not how to forbid them. If you're a grandparent or just someone in the church without any children, be ready to help where and when you can. Teach. But please, please don't teach the same tripe that we've been feeding these kids for decades. And don't use the mindless, virtually godless material that are being peddled to naive churches. Find a solid curriculum provider or develop your own material. Do something to make the kids of all ages 
think and answer questions and ask questions and have deep, meaningful interactions. If you're working in a field where some of these recently graduated, socially clueless kids or young adults are being hired, gently offer to speak into their lives to help them understand how things work around there, how to interact with others, or figure out your own way to slowly and gradually change the trajectory that we're currently on. I mean, surely there's something that we all can do. Our kids and people in general shouldn't have to rely on articles written about how to perform the most basic of life skills. Whoever said money can't buy happiness apparently has no idea what he and or she was talking about. From what I can tell, money can buy you food. And you can tell by looking at me, food clearly buys you temporary happiness, followed by crippling regret. Money can buy you stuff. And who doesn't like stuff? Stuff makes you happy forever and ever until it breaks or you get bored of it. Not counting the almost instant buyer's remorse, of course. If you have enough money, it can buy you friends, and friends make you happy, as long as you keep making it rain on said friends with the aforementioned monies. Money for some people can buy relationships, and depending on how much money you pay, and what part of the country or world you live in, those relationships are accepted as normal, if not beautiful, or they'll land you in prison. And as we all know, relationships make you happy just all of the time, until the other one does or doesn't do the tiniest thing, and then it's all over, unless the other one is the one with the money, and then it's it's fine for now. And money can buy you power, maybe not always directly, but how many of our illustrious lawmakers or global elites are living check-to-check working a blue-collar job? Not many. And when you wield virtually unchecked power, knowing that everyone loves you and wants nothing but ever-increasing success and more power for you, well, as Adam Duritz, the lead singer for Counting Crows, said in his hit song, Mr. Jones, well, I'm going to be just about as happy as I can be. Now that we've established the obvious error in that silly saying, let me ask you this. Have you ever tried somebody else's money? I mean, not only can it buy all the happiness we just spoke of, but what we're quickly learning from various experiments in various cities and various states, it seems to fix all or nearly all of societal ills. I think, based on what we're learning, that maybe we should all use someone else's money. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating that we steal from people. I'm advocating that the government steals from... Taxes people. And by people, I mean the evil rich. And by the evil rich, I mean pretty much lower middle class and up, and redistribute that wealth to those that did nothing to earn that money. Think of it as giving to a charity that you didn't know you wanted to give to as badly as you apparently do, especially at the dollar figure you definitely probably wanted to give at... For, it seems. Found on Business Insider via news.yahoo.com headline, Denver experimented with giving people $1,000 a month. It reduced homelessness and increased full-time employment, a study found. That headline alone should really make you ask some questions. This is the type of headline that just makes my brain scatter in about 20 different directions. Some of those directions I'm going to ignore. Some I'm going to just touch on. Some we'll explore together. One thought I had was, is $1,000 a month a living wage? Well, 
What we've been told for a number of years now by the political left is that we need a minimum wage of $20 per hour in order to provide a living wage. If you do the math at 40 hours a week, $20 per hour, 52 weeks per year, then uh, average that out per month, since that's what the $1,000 was based on, a monthly stipend, you come out with just under $3,500 a month before taxes. Let's figure 25% for taxes. You're now at about $2,600 per month. Take-home pay, that's 2.6 times the $1,000 that's being handed out. So this magical $1,000 is apparently enough to do all sorts of things if you're homeless. But it's woefully short of the amount of money that we're told facilitates life. Okay. There are 19 states that have a Denver, including my very own wild and wonderful West Virginia. This one is in Colorado. Now, the article doesn't actually say that, but I mean, I looked up all the other Denvers on Google Maps. One, it couldn't even find. I mean, Google didn't know where it was. Three, if I remember correctly, I didn't actually take notes on it, were actually small towns. And the rest were basically, at best, eh, wide spots on a back road. The reason I looked at these was because my thought was, well, if you made or were given $1,000 a month in one of these small towns or unincorporated towns, okay, maybe it would really help you out. But no, this is the Denver, the big one, the Colorado one, and $1,000 acts differently there than it does other places. So I looked up some cost of living comparisons among the states. I found one data set on PatriotSoftware.com that listed each state, the average annual wage across all occupations, the average monthly rent, and most interestingly, the value of $100 in each state. So a little data. The highest average income state is Massachusetts, but it also has the fifth highest rent cost and the fifth worst value of $100 at an equivalent of $89.60. Mississippi has the lowest annual income, the 12th lowest rental cost, and the best value of $100 at $115.60. Hawaii has the worst rental cost, while North Dakota has the best, and as I said, Mississippi has the best value of $100, while Hawaii has the worst. Colorado specifically has the 8th highest annual salary at $67,870 per year. The value of $100 is just under that at $98.10, which is the 13th worst. And the average rental cost is $1,633 per month, which is the 10th worst. Across all states, the average income is $58,575 per year. The average rent is $1,313 per month. And the average value of $100 is $103. Now, this article was published in June 2023, but the data is from May 2022. And as we all know, Bidenomics has been grinding away trying to get up to full steam and completely crater our economy. So I guarantee the data today is worse than it was in May of 2022. But this is the latest data that I have. I found another site from MIT addressed as livingwage.mit.edu that allows you to search by state or city to find out what your living wage needs to be. For Denver, they say that $20.01 per hour for a single adult, no children, is required to live. If you make $6.53 per hour, you're at poverty level. This current minimum wage in Denver is $13.65. 
Just FYI, $6.53 per hour, that equates to about $13,500 per year, just over $1,000 per month. As a comparison, Charleston, West Virginia, the capital of my state, says that I would require $14.40 per hour, the current minimum wage is $8.75 per hour, and poverty again would be $6.53 per hour. The link to the site is in the notes. You can play with some other locations if you'd like. According to this calculator, they say that a single adult would spend about $15,000 per year on housing in Denver. The other site estimated about $20,000 for housing in Colorado. Either way, at a gift amount of $1,000 per month, you're going to get a rat hole of an apartment or maybe just a room. Or you'll need a roommate or three, and even then you need food, possibly utilities, clothing, etc. So no matter how you slice this up, I have a hard time buying into the premise presented by the headline that $1,000 a month simply given to someone that's currently homeless will reduce homelessness and increase full-time employment. But let's take a quick look at the article and jump into the actual study and let's see what they've found. This study was undertaken by the Center for Housing and Homelessness Research, University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work. <laughs> That's a big business card, and it was done in partnership with the Denver Basic Income Project, or DBIP. Uh, just in case you're not familiar, basic income, also known as minimum income or mincome or universal basic income, is a program set up by a government that hands out money, money collected through taxes, generally in the form of essentially cash to all people or people at a certain income or poverty level, or whatever their criteria is. This idea has been around for a long time. It's had a modernized take on it. It's rearing its ugly head in the United States. That came about maybe about 100 years ago. As of now, there are a handful of cities across the country that are doing some form of this practice, or more accurately, they're experimenting with the idea. And you'd be shocked to know that every location is in either a blue or purple state and blue cities within those states. <laughs> I know, like I said, shocked. So the article itself doesn't really offer much, to be honest. It's a very short article. It says, quote, A study found that direct cash assistance reduced homelessness and increased employment in Denver. So they apparently had three test groups with a total of 631 participants. Now, the article says 800, but that's the initial number tapped to be in the study, out of which 631 actually filled out the enrollment survey. Out of that, only 457 actually completed the six-month survey. The first group got $1,000 a month for a year. The second group received a lump sum of $6,500, and then they were given $500 a month for the next 11 months for a total of a year. The third group got a kick right in the pants. They only got $50 a month. What a ripoff. Now, I say that they got it for a year, but that's not quite right. The experiment is for a year. And although the experiment ran from, I think, October to October or November to November, this report is actually only the six-month follow-up, which, I'll be honest, as a data guy, sure, I mean, evaluating the progress in six months, that's fine, right? That's good. In fact, it's actually desirable to do that. But drawing a conclusion, even a preliminary conclusion, uh, it's pretty much useless for the most part. But nobody asked me. Now, to their credit, I did find a disclaimer in the report that said we should not try to conclude anything from the data yet, and the final report would be out in June of 2024. 
which seems pretty excessive, as this doesn't really seem like an overly complicated study. But again, nobody asked me. Now, at this point, you may be wondering what the results are. There were encouraging changes, per the article, so try to follow the best you can. This gets pretty technical here. Quote, those who received $500 a month or more had seen the biggest gains. Let me break that down for you. Those that got more money did better. That's what they're trying to say. Looking at the numbers, the study found, so far, that those that received $1,000 a month went from 6% of the recipients sleeping outside to 0%. But the number of people sleeping in their own home or apartment went from 8% to 34%. The massive difference in those percentages suggests to me that the $1,000 had very little to do with the change. And keep in mind, this group started with 209 participants and only had 154 actually checking in at the six-month mark. Well, since only 6% of this group initially reported sleeping outside, and that represents 13 people out of the 209, can we really assume that the money is the reason those 13 people are no longer sleeping outside? I mean, we can assume anything we want, right? But without other data, eh, I don't believe any other data was captured. This would be purely speculative. Those that got the big lump sum went from 10% sleeping outside to 3%. Their reporting group went from 193 initially to 136, and 7% of 193 is 14 people. So can we say that the lump sum and monthly stipend was the cause of this change? Maybe, maybe not. As the $50 a month short straw drawers, they went from 8% to 4% sleeping outside, and their group went from 229 to 167 participants. 4% of 229 is only 10 people. Did those 10 people use that $50 a month to find housing? I'd say that's highly unlikely, which calls into question the effectiveness of the other two monetary groups on sleeping outside, as it appears this could just be the normal state of constant change that we'd see in those that are in this particular position. Overall, the number of people living in shelters reduced by more than half, from 23% to 10%. Well, overall, the study lost 174 participants. 13% of the original 631 is 82 people. So, are all 82 people out of shelters because of the stipend? Well, again, maybe, maybe not. It doesn't appear that there's any way to know, at least per this interim report. They all, and by all, of course, we mean those that actually reported in at six months, said that they feel more safe where they're sleeping now. Mental health allegedly improved across the group, but the $50 jokes on you group did report feeling slightly more stress and anxiety and less hope. That's actually an interesting observation. Money good, a lot of money better, a little money, opposite effect. Now, I could see that, knowing that that little bit of money really can't do anything for you, that the other people are getting more money than you. I could see it actually depressing you more. I mean, none of us would like to admit it, I think. But if you think about it, if you work in a company like I do, where you typically get annual raises, that's when they come out. If you think you'll get a certain figure for a raise, but you get less, or if you know the percent or dollar figure raise someone else got and you got less, even though you got a raise you'll go through a, at least a short period of, for lack of a better term, depression, because you'll feel slighted. So eh, I can see this. They comment in the article, quote, that material gains were seen among all groups suggests at least some of the improvements may be attributable to something other than cash, such as increased access to other services during the study period. The researchers don't speculate. 
Well, the researchers shouldn't speculate. They should be taking into consideration all aspects of their participants so as to determine if, you know, making it rain is actually doing anything or not. In my job, working in the manufacturing sector, if we're trying to solve a problem, we try to make one change at a time so we can track the effect. If we have to make multiple changes at once or system conditions change during the testing, we do everything we can to quantify what exactly has happened and account for it in the results of our work. You don't just start replacing pumps, motors, valves while production is ramping up and down. And different operators run the equipment differently, etc. And then say, oh, it must be what we did that fixed it. I mean, there's almost no way to be able to claim that, just like there isn't any way to claim that free cash is helping the homeless, at least per the study thus far. They claim that this is a randomized controlled trial. Well, I don't know all the technical descriptions of trials like this, but I do know that they didn't have a control group of people that were just left alone. And they do comment on that farther into the study. But their control group is basically the group only given $50 a month. So... By definition of the study, they believe that everyone, based on their criteria, should get at least some free money. The question isn't if, it's how much. They also really control their participants, which is fine as long as any conclusions drawn and actions suggested apply to people that are just as stringently qualified. They had to be 18 years old or older. They had to be currently accessing some sort of homelessness service providing agencies, one of 19 in the city that this study partnered with to find participants. They needed to be free of severe mental illness or mental illness that wasn't being addressed. They needed to be free of drug use. They needed to be homeless, clearly, but even there they kind of broadened the scope. So a participant was considered homeless if they didn't have, quote, fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. Now, this included participants living in motels or hotels, campgrounds, sharing housing due to losing their own housing, sleeping in their car or a park or other public space, living in abandoned buildings, any sort of shelter, or sleeping somewhere that wasn't designed to be used as an overnight accommodation. They go on to evaluate categories like average number of nights unsheltered, which shows about a 50% decrease from 1.3 to 1.6 nights prior to the study to 0.6 to 1 at the six-month follow-up. But I couldn't find where they said 1.3 nights out of how long of a time period. Is this for the six months or is this per week? I'm not really sure. It doesn't really matter because although their write-up about this data point reads, quote, participants from all three payment groups show a statistically significant decrease in the number of nights spent unsheltered. When you look at their data table, there's a little asterisk that when followed to the note is basically saying that the findings per the data aren't really able to be trusted or that this is probably not what would be seen in the real world. Another topic was the financial well-being of the participant. This is part of the survey and asks questions like, do you have access to a bank account and are you able to pay all your bills and do you have money left over at the end of the month? Now, I literally at this point had to scroll back up in the report to make sure I understood what this experiment was intended for. And, and yes, it's it's an experiment in giving cash to people that are homeless. I'd say their financial well-being is its kind of garbage. And yes, prior to the study, on a scale of 1 to 4, 1 being the worst, all participants averaged about 1.4. So that's not good. 
But after six months, they're all now sitting at uh, 2.5 to 2.6. But again, we see that pesky little asterisk right there saying that the data is likely not repeatable and the findings are really not realistic. Why did they publish the data? That's my main question here. Now, they covered forms of employment, including actual full or part-time employment, selling things, including blood, collecting cans, etc., etc., etc. Interestingly, only 2% reported as being fully unemployed. They're doing nothing at all. But the preliminary findings show a 7% increase in full-time employment for those receiving $1,000 a month, a 14% increase for those who got the lump sum and $500 a month after that, and no change in the group that's getting the piddly little $50 per month. Now, I hope they're capturing why that change occurs. Is it because of the money, which I could see that could help, or is it because of other factors? Interestingly, the feeling of hope really didn't change. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, for those receiving the $50, their perception of hope actually dropped slightly. The feeling of food insecurity dropped very slightly across all groups, which you'd think that at least the first two groups would feel a good deal more secure, but but no, you'd be wrong, just, just a little bit. I also found it interesting that the group that got the lump sum had a larger increase in feelings of hope and a larger decrease in feelings of food insecurity. I wonder if as that $6,500 dwindles away and they're only receiving the $500 a month, will their hope drop and their feelings of food insecurity rise? If I were a betting man, I think I'd take action on that one. We also see the same trend with the use of various social services. The lump sum group having a larger decrease in usage. We see the lump sum group with the largest increase in feeling of transportation security. And looking at these same categories, we see the feeling of hope decreased, the social services increased, the transportation insecurity increased, etc. for the group that got the $50 a month. So as I said, this is supposed to be a year-long study, wrapping up in October or November, reporting out in June of 2024, for some reason. I think that it would be interesting to follow up and evaluate the same people for another six months or a year after the money stops. Is this a handout or a hand up? If we're just giving a man a fish without changing anything, oh, when that daily fish doesn't show up for a few days, that man dies. And frankly, the increase in employment doesn't suggest that this program is worth continuing. This project was the brainchild of a Mr. Mark Donovan, an entrepreneur that apparently made a buttload of money in Tesla stock. He wanted to do something for those that were losing jobs and houses during the totally legit pandemic and resulting necessary economic destruction of our country. He didn't use those words exactly or at all, but he did want to help. So he pulled out a half a million dollars from his Tesla stock and created the Denver Basic Income Project. DBIP. He wanted to model this off of the Canadian New Leaf Project in Vancouver, where uh, you just trust people. The theory is that if you just give no strings attached cash to people, they'll use it responsibly. They'll figure out the best way to use it, and they'll, quote, use it to lift themselves out of their current circumstances. To give you an idea of the color of the sky in Mark's world, he said, quote, you know, when it comes to privilege, I check off all the boxes as a white, cis, able male. And so I'm fortunate to have had a lot of opportunities that a lot of people don't, and I felt an obligation to do everything I could to leverage that privilege to the benefit of others. 
And that's fine. Do what you want with your money. It's your money. But when someone starts talking about their white privilege, it's just a way of warning people like you and me to stop listening as that person has no understanding of the real world. Regardless, he took a half a million of his own cash, and Denver scrimped and scraped and saved and decided to give the project $2 million of the COVID money that our taxes partially paid for, the other part, of course, being just printed paper backed by stacks of IOUs to the Treasury, and the project was born. Mark, and at this point I think we'll need to label him like Wiley Coyote, Mark, super genius, went on to say, quote, People are frustrated by the hoops they have to jump through just to get a few scraps. When you say to somebody, we trust you, we believe in you, and we know that you know what you need in your life, that's powerful. He went on, quote, We haven't done formal research yet, but you're going to start seeing some really exciting stories emerging from this space and from this work. And let's be honest, there's nothing more exciting than forced charity via taxes and wealth redistribution at the hands of a government based on the premise that people are just good. One more pearl of wisdom from Mark Donovan Esquire, quote, It's listening to them and letting them take the wheel because it's their life. Um, so I'd say for nearly all homeless, them taking the wheel because it's their life is where the problem began. I don't mean to generalize, although I absolutely mean to generalize. Yes, I know that there are myriad contributors to homelessness. But come on, I'm a root cause analysis guy. When you start working your way down through the tree of why this and why that and why the other, and you get down to the root, a good majority of circumstances are based on life choices. Furthermore, I don't know about your experience or your location, but from my limited experience and other anecdotal stories from other people I've spoken with, there are a large majority of homeless people that either aren't really homeless or they prefer to live the lifestyle they're living. No work, no responsibility, and Americans are very, very generous and sympathetic. So some of these guys make a great living, relatively speaking. As for the location, unless you're living in one of those wide spots on the road named Denver, nearly every town and city in the country has churches and church-funded services, social services, private organizations, etc. that are there to help people that are down on their luck and need temporary help to get back on their feet. The reason you see so many vagrants is because, again, they don't want the help. They don't want a meal. They don't want a shower or a shave, a suit, and an interview. They want no-strings-attached cash exactly what this initiative wants to give them. Like I said previously, Denver isn't alone in this type of experiment in the country or the world. San Francisco did a study with a whopping 14 people, giving them $500 a month, and after six whole months of which, two-thirds, so says the article, or nine, maybe ten people, found permanent housing. I need more information here, as $500 a month doesn't get you housing in San Francisco. Now, the article notes that Santa Fe, New Mexico and upstate New York have played with this idea, and Philadelphia is playing with extending a universal government-funded income to, quote, people who are pregnant. I'm so tired of the anti-science, anti-reality, woke language. What they meant to say was pregnant women. The article touches on the Vancouver project that our super genius entrepreneur liked, saying that the city gave about $5,600 to more than 100 people, quote, experiencing poverty. Ying Zhao, an associate professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia, said, quote, housing improved, it reduced homelessness, it increased spending and savings over time, and was a net savings for government and taxpayers. 
And I have to ask, all that from $5,600 per person? This is the same leftist trope as our own president vegetable regurgitating the line that a $10,000 or $20,000 student loan forgiveness, not cash in this case, just knocking it off the loans, would allow these borrowers to now buy a house or start a business or start a family. No, it won't. It won't do that at all. And we all know it. It's, it's just, we need to call it what it is. It's a lie. But it's a lie steeped in emotional appeal, which is what the left thrives on, which is why middle-aged women are the worst voting demographic for Republicans. The left is very good at crafting the message along empathetic lines. This is why our dementia patient-in-chief kept repeating the stupid line about the empty chairs at the kitchen table with regard to COVID. It hits you right in the feels, and certain demographics are hit in the feels harder than others. And so does buying a home or starting a family. These are key phrases that hit emotionally and empathetically just so right. There's a very dangerous push in this country and around the world that's gaining steam. The basic premise takes on a few different methods, but the bottom line is for us all to be paid for nothing. I mean, look at the recent strikes across primarily the United States, best represented by our United Auto Workers. The demand of a 32-hour work week while increasing salaries by, like, what was it, 40%? That's asinine. It's ridiculous on its face. But instead of the auto manufacturers laughing and saying, that ain't going to happen, they negotiate from a point of weakness. The teachers' unions are, like all unions, they're Marxists, who just want more money for less work. And in their case, they want that while they indoctrinate children with lies and godless communist ideology. The Washington Post published an article in October 2022 with the headline of, quote, Universal basic income has been tested repeatedly. It works. Will America ever embrace it? The Washington Post is a leftist liberal rag, just FYI. They once again speak of very small-scale trials. And then they give a couple anecdotal stories from a few of the recipients. And then they conclude that, see, we should do it everywhere for everyone because it just works so good. The New Yorker, back in March of 2021, had the headline of, quote, Biden's stimulus plan contains an experiment in universal basic income. They, of course, went on to demonize Republicans for not supporting the bill, but they said that Biden, or his handlers, as Biden couldn't have thought this up on his own, he can't even find his own pants, has provisions in the bill that would give a one-time $1,400 payment to those earning less than $80,000 a year. It would have increased unemployment payments by $300 per week through September of 2021, and it would have increased the child tax credit to $3,600 per child under the age of six and $3,000 for each child between six and 17 years old. The New Yorker said, quote, that has the greatest potential to change the way that the United States addresses poverty. Does it? Because based on the union strikes and demands, based on the leftist living wage argument, $250 to $300 per month per child doesn't seem to be enough to address poverty. In fact, what we see is that those in poverty, and this most heavily hits the black community, seems to be overloaded with single mothers with multiple children. The more kids you have, the more money you get from the government. At the same time, the more kids you have, the more you slip into poverty. But that's okay, because the more you slip into poverty, the more you can't afford more kids, the more Planned Parenthood will gladly get rid of any of those children prior to or just at birth. And again, especially those little tar babies, because Planned Parenthood hates the black community because they're steeped in and founded on evolution-based racism. But free money, right? 
From what I've read in the past, the common thread in these universal basic income projects, from what I can tell, is that these are all done as small-scale, city-focused, or very small, already socialist, country-focused experiments. It's done with a small trial population. It's done with a combination of private money and some public funds, you know, your my tax dollars. And the recipients aren't universal. They're very well vetted. All of this is done to garner the positive results the study desires. From this, the assumption is made and somehow accepted that if it works for 14 well-vetted people or 125 or 600, well, there's no reason it can't work for just everyone. Well, this simply isn't true. This is a logical fallacy. It's a couple logical fallacies. In fact, this is first and foremost a sample size fallacy. This is taking a poll about who's going to win the next presidential election, asking only your family members and only those family members that agree with your opinion, and then stating how your preferred candidate will win in a landslide based on your polling data. This is also a scaling fallacy. This is the assumption that just because something works at a small, well-controlled scale, we can just ramp it up to full scale and the same kind of success is guaranteed. I'm a fan of watching accident and disaster analysis documentaries. <laughs> I know, I know, this is probably one of the many, many reasons I'm still single. One of the channels I like to keep up with is the Chemical Safety Board. They do excellent analyses and excellent animated recreations of an event. You can learn a lot from these things. I have learned a lot from these. More than once, I've seen a massive devastating accident caused by a scaling fallacy. A small, two-gallon reactor vessel producing a certain product is immediately ramped up to full scale with a 10,000-gallon reactor vessel. The process goes out of control. The accident happens. Sometimes you can scale things up. If I can make a cookie that tastes really good, odds are I can multiply that recipe by 100 and make 100 really good-tasting cookies. But with regard to handing out money... The Denver Project apparently used $500,000 of private funds, $2 million of public funds, and not even Denver's funds, federal COVID relief funding, and it's serving 600-plus people, well-vetted people, with minimal positive results. According to an article in July of 2023 from KDVR.com, Colorado's Fox 31 affiliate, Denver has just under 7,000 homeless people in the metro area. So if we scale this program up, we're looking at 5 million in private funds and 20 million in some sort of tax-based funding. And actually more than that, as those that got the $50 per month saw generally negative results, so they would need the higher dollar figure. And that's for minimally positive results. And no idea if this is a single one-year investment or if this has to continue year after year after year or else the gains are lost, which would be my guess. Then realize that New York and Los Angeles all have over 60,000 homeless, so scale all that up by another 10 times per city. And a true universal basic income isn't just for the homeless, it's also for those in poverty, for those with children, for those that are lower middle class, for those that are middle class, and really for everyone that's not part of the evil rich class, which also has a constantly moving definition. And a truly universal basic income doesn't vet the recipients, and it doesn't stipulate how the cash can be used. So I'm sure you can see how that would just work out so well for everyone. The reality is that this is just a push for socialism. It's a way to destroy the masculine mandate to work and provide, protect. It's a way to just let the government be your provider, your benevolent leader, your God, if you will. Socialism is best described in the phrase, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. 
Of course, this always leads to the next step of what happens to those that need just a little too much and can't provide adequately. Those net takers are typically eliminated as they're just not worth keeping alive. The Bible is very clear about work. Man was created to work, to tend the garden. After sin, work got harder. But the mandate didn't go away. The mandate changed to continue to work, just work harder. We're told to do our work as if we're working for the Lord, to commit our work to the Lord. We're told in Proverbs that one that is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys, that profit comes from work and poverty comes from mere talk, that the hand of the diligent will rule, but the slothful will be put to forced labor. Socialism, anyone? Paul tells us that the thief should no longer steal, but that he and the rest of us should work hard in honest labor with our own hands so we may have something to share with anyone in need. And the most common argument, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We, as Christians, are called to be workers, providers, and charitable people. We're supposed to provide for our families, including taking care of our parents, as well as leaving something for our children— The church and Christians as a family of believers are supposed to take care of each other, which may mean temporarily helping with food, shelter, cash, etc. Lastly, we're supposed to be charitable to others, the general population, but that doesn't nullify the command to work. In no way should we expect to give or receive endless charity from others or to others. During the Great Depression, you know, the time period experienced by everyone else in the world known as A or The Depression, only known in America as the Great Depression, because nearly every move our Democrat government made resulted in the worsening of said depression, being saved, for lack of a better term, by the war, right? Not by the social safety nets and work programs put in place by our overlords. During the Great Depression, men clamored for work. They traveled great distances. They were away from home for very long periods of time. They worked long hours in physically demanding and dangerous jobs for low wages. White-collar workers were in direct competition with everyone else for any kind of work they could find. And sure, I'd say that most of them were doing this in order to provide for their family in any way they could figure out, but that doesn't explain those men who were willing to work for very little, or in some cases, for free. They just needed to work. They begged for anything to do because they were losing their identity as a man. Work transcends wages. Our creator created us to work. To deny that is to deny our very creation, which for all image bearers of God, which includes all of humanity, well, that cuts to the very heart of our being, or at least it used to. What we've seen over the last 100 plus years is a systematic destruction of the very heart of work and charity. This has all been compromised through governmental systems that have slowly eroded charity through the usurpation by social safety nets, workers' unions, and believe it or not, the educational system itself. What used to be a reliance on family, church, and community is now a reliance on unemployment, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, SNAP, and the like. The dollars that used to go to tithes, so-called, or offerings and charitable giving are now in direct competition with the dollars that go for mandatory taxes that are being used to fund the social programs. Unions that absolutely started with what appeared to be right motives, protecting children, demanding fair wages for reasonable hours in safe workspaces, have now become Marxist, calling for the eating of the rich. The same rich, as it turns out, that made it and make it possible for them to have a job in the first place. And after decades of men increasingly dropping out of or not joining the workforce, well, economists have figured out why. They're just going to college. They'll get there eventually. Just be patient. 
We've convinced our kids that they must get a college degree in order to survive. We've shifted the narrative from thinking that a high school degree was something valuable to the idea now that if you don't have a college degree, and preferably an advanced degree, you might as well go dig ditches or something. Completely ignoring the fact that most of the jobs out there don't require a college degree. And those are the jobs that really keep the engine of this country churning away. Not everyone needs a six-figure college degree in order to work a low five-figure job. We need to break that mindset. And there are signs that that lie is cracking, finally. And I say this as someone with a college degree. And what's my job? To help those without college degrees keep the equipment running so that those without college degrees can use it to produce products that help keep the engine of this country running. I absolutely know my true place in the hierarchy. The universal basic income in any form, by any name, in any city or country is nothing but another well-disguised nail in the already well-hammered coffin of socialism. It's another social safety net designed to produce laziness, dependence, entitlement, and compliance. Ring the bell, get a treat. There comes a point where you run out of other people's money. The ability to privately fund out of a misguided sense of empathy, a basic income to even just a subset of well-vetted homeless and or poverty-stricken individuals is minuscule at best. To do what they want to do, everyone knows will require a massive infusion of cash from the only entity able to provide it, government, through the use of our tax dollars and printed monopoly money, to force yet another social program down our collective throats. Even at a small scale, we clearly see that the results are minimally positive with no idea what the long-term effects or ramifications are. The conclusions drawn that a small amount of money, especially in high cost of living cities, results in more employment, permanent residencies, increased savings, etc. are nonsensical at best. Unless you've got a magical mama dollar and papa dollar about to produce like rabbits like Jimmy Stewart hoped for in the classic It's a Wonderful Life, that small amount of money literally can't do what they're claiming it can do. Furthermore, there's no reason to believe, no data to point to, that a fairly well-controlled experiment like this, ramped up to a full-scale social program, would have any better success, or frankly any success at all. This would almost certainly result in a massive amount of cash eh, simply flushed down the toilet. The only solution is what we've already discussed, a return to the Bible, or at the very least, biblical principles. The answer isn't to give people endless cash. It's to give people the gospel. It's not to give them a handout. It's to give them the truth. Christian charity should be used lovingly and generously, but judiciously and temporarily. To do otherwise is to contradict what we've been clearly told in the Bible, which would be the opposite of helpful, the opposite of loving, and the exact same thing we've been doing over and over again, expecting different results for over a hundred years now. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Hey, welcome back to the goal updating goal update that's being used to update goals that need updating. This is the 37th of one of these things, and I'm here, and you're here, and really that's all we need, so let's go! Isn't that what the kids are doing these days? Let's go! Anyway, let's start with the weight loss goal, which morphed into 
the weight excuse generation device, then a weight gain confessional, then a questioning of what exactly am I doing here, then an existential crisis, and finally a backup and punt because I'm now rethinking everything. I'm not weighing myself right now. I'm loosely tracking calories. I'm working out, which of as of right now, is burning in the 750 to 800 calorie range per workout, and I'm kind of experimenting with, how do I feel? And as of now, I feel heavier than I want, but I feel good. It's kind of hard to explain, but I don't feel like how I felt in the past when I've just sat around doing nothing but eating. This is different. So I figure since this year is nearly over and I failed on the goal I set, potentially at least in part because maybe it was a bad goal, I'm going to experiment with my body and see what it's doing and figure out some sort of goal for next year. The good thing is that I'm a healthy guy, I'm not grossly overweight, I'm not on medication, etc., etc., and I am working out, so I think I can do some experimentation without doing any damage. I think. I hope. Okay, here's a funny story. I don't know how many of you have experienced your heart skipping a beat. I know since I was a kid, every once in a while, and we're talking, what, probably a handful of times a year, my heart would skip a beat. I think my sister has the same thing. We don't have any heart problems. I'm just kind of assuming everyone experiences these from time to time. Anyway, if you've never experienced one, it it just kind of takes your breath away for a split second, and then your heart just continues on lub-dubbing like normal. Well, I had something the other day that I think I've only experienced maybe once or twice before. A skipped beat while working out. So the heart was thumping away at about 150 beats per minute per my tracker as I was doing the elliptical trainer, which is, of course, the cardio part of my workout, and it skipped a beat. And wow, if you've never had that, I mean, that throws a shot of pain across your chest, makes you feel pretty weak-kneed, and for a fraction of a second, you turn into Fred Sanford from the old sitcom Sanford and Son, you know, this is the big one, I'm coming, Elizabeth, and then it's fine again. And so, uh, so that was fun. Anyway. I'll keep updating this part of the goal update. I'm just not sure exactly what it's going to look like, but I'll figure something out. As for reading, so remember how I said I was going to finish that book? Well, I mean, I sort of did, but in a much more real sense, I didn't. So I read 44 pages last week, which technically finished the book. But there are two appendices, which I'm counting as part of the book, as there are really two more chapters of good information. So I need to read those, and I just... I just didn't do it. It's only like 17 pages, too. I have no excuse. I just didn't do it. I can probably knock those out by next week. I mean, I would hope. That said, I'm at 5,365 pages read this year, 15 pages away from topping my reading goal from 2019. Nearly there. And Bible. Hey, for the first time in a few weeks, I was able to get five days of reading in. So that nudges my overall rate to 81.3% of my goal. Like I said last week, I need to do some rethinking of how I not only track this goal, but also do the reading. Not entirely sure I like how I'm doing it now. I mean, I want to do the same thing basically that I'm doing, but I think there's probably a better way. That's for later. As for progress, I'm through Exodus 11 in the chronological plan and through Genesis 7 in the in-depth part of my reading. So what did I come across or question or whatever this week? Okay, an observation about Pharaoh, and I'm not trying to make excuses for him. He was definitely responsible for his choices. But as with a lot of these accounts, we use our knowledge of the big picture and we wag our heads finding just so much fault with these partially evolved Neanderthals. I mean, how could they keep doing what they're doing? Haven't they read their Bible? 
But Pharaoh, at the beginning of Exodus 5, tells Moses, quote, Who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and also I will not let Israel go. Well, he didn't know Yahweh. He knew a lot of gods, so-called. This Yahweh character was just one of his slaves' gods, but they were slaves, so how good could their god actually be? So Pharaoh acted like someone who didn't know and didn't care who Yahweh was, exactly like we should expect him to act. If you bring that observation forward to the present day, we're horrified, or I guess you should be if you aren't, that there are people advocating for the murder of the unborn, denying that the fetus is even human. We have people advocating for psychological and physical mutilation of children. We're spending massive amounts of money to promote and to trans the military. They're promoting racial division in humanity, which is one single race, despite the coloration of skin. They're worshiping the planet. We currently have people that are siding with a group of terrorists that brutally tortured, raped, and murdered innocent men, women, and children. We, and this includes me, are simply dumbfounded by this. How could these people do and say what they're doing? Well, they're not saved. They're acting like people who are not saved. They don't know who this Yahweh is, and they don't care. We shouldn't be surprised by any level of evil from those that are unsaved. We should actually probably be more surprised and definitely thankful that complete and total evil is still restrained today. Next time you're just flabbergasted by, uh, just pick something in the news, keep in mind that this is a humanity primarily made up of unsaved, unrepentant, hellbound people, that they're doing exactly what we would expect them to do. We do need to fight against the evil, both spiritually and physically, but understand that these people do what they do because they're choosing actions consistent with their nature and desire. All right, next point. Exodus 7, Aaron's staff turning into a serpent, and then Pharaoh's magicians doing the same with their staffs, and then Aaron's gobbling up theirs. There's a lot of questions about did the staffs of the magicians actually turn into serpents? Now, I've always heard that, no, that's not possible, as God wouldn't have done that, and Satan can't create, so he couldn't have done it. Maybe it was an illusion. Maybe they had snakes hidden inside their staffs. Ugh. Yeah, I gotta say, I'm convinced that their staffs literally turned into literal serpents, exactly the same as Aaron's did. When you look at verses 10 through 13, we read, quote, And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts, and each one threw down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, when you look at the word became, it's the same Hebrew word used for both Aaron and the magicians, hayah. And it's defined as an emphatic word, not a simple connector type word. This is emphatically saying to become. The staffs did become. So to me, I agree that Satan can't create. From this word, hayah, I don't believe that this was an illusion or a trick. So I'm left to believe that God did this. He allowed their secret arts to actually work from their standpoint and change their staffs into serpents exactly the same way he did with Aaron's. Now, if I were a betting man, I'd be poor, but I'd also bet that the magicians were just as shocked as anyone else that their secret arts actually worked this time. So why would God do this for them? Well, Aaron's staff could swallow them up. That's why. 
God told Moses to perform these signs for the Israelites. Then he told Moses to tell Aaron to perform these signs for Pharaoh, one of which was turning a staff into a serpent and back again. But that doesn't mean that God was limited in only doing that. Pharaoh, with many gods, with his own magicians, who they likely knew a lot of illusions and tricks, was possibly, maybe likely, not overly impressed that a staff turned into a snake. Ooh, whatever. But gobbling up three others, then turning back into a staff? Well, that might have been a little bit more impressive. No idea, but overall, I have to believe that this literally happened. It wasn't a trick or an illusion. That's what I think. Your opinion may vary. Let me know if I've missed something here. Okay, just as a general note, as you get into the plagues, keep in mind that not all the plagues were removed when the next plague was enacted. Watch for key words as to what was going on at the same time. Also watch for when Moses warns Pharaoh of the next plague, giving him time to think about what's coming, versus when he doesn't warn him, when God just sends the next one. Watch for when Moses allows Pharaoh to have a say as to when the plague would be removed, versus when he doesn't. Also, watch carefully for how often God hardens Pharaoh's heart versus Pharaoh hardening his own heart. More than half the time, God does the hardening. Now, this is referenced in Romans 9, the definitive chapter regarding the election of our sovereign God. When Paul says, quote, What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. This reference is back to Exodus 9, where we read just prior to the plague of hail, uh, the likes that had never been seen before or since, quote, And Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh, and you shall say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues against your heart and amongst your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been wiped out from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Now, I know that the doctrine of God's sovereign election makes some, many, most, a lot of people very uncomfortable, but it's everywhere in the Bible. God initially told Moses that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Not that his heart would be hardened or that he would ignore Moses. God told Moses before Moses even went to Pharaoh the first time that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart through every plague until the very last. In Exodus 4, we read, quote, When you go to return to Egypt, see to it that all the miraculous wonders which I have put in your hand, that you do them before Pharaoh. But as for me... I will harden his heart with strength so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. 
See, Pharaoh is responsible for his actions and choices made of his own free will per the desires of his heart. But God is sovereign over all. Pharaoh, much like Judas in the New Testament, was created and placed in the position he was for God's plan to be fulfilled for his glory. And that's it. Anyway, watch for the exact wording used throughout the plagues. There's a lot of really interesting information that the typical Sunday school lesson never brings out. All right, continuing on. At the end of the plague of hail, Moses said that he would remove the storm when he left the city. Now, this hail, like I said, was huge and deadly, something that had never been seen before, would never be seen again. It was killing all the animals that had been left in the field, killing all those that were outside, the cacophony of the storm, the screams of terror, the wails of those mourning, the sounds of objects being destroyed, and then Moses, unbeknownst to anyone, under God's judgment, stretched out his hand and... Silence. The storm was instantly over. It had to be in order to show that Moses and thus Yahweh controlled the storm. I wonder if the clouds instantly rolled away, the sun now out and shining and the hailstones rapidly melting, the screams subsiding, the terror abating, only the weeping of those mourning their losses being heard across the city. We always gloss over these plagues, but put yourself into the position of those with no idea of what's going on. You can see why at the end of the plagues, the Egyptians were willing to do anything to just get these people out. And one thing from my reading in Genesis. At the end of Genesis 7, the chapter wraps up with everything and everyone being wiped out except for Noah and his family. There was a cross-reference to Matthew 24, verses 38 to 39, which is Jesus speaking of the end times, mentioning the flood of Noah. But something caught my eye about the way Jesus phrased what he said, and I'm Probably just reading too much into this, so take this with a massive Lot's wife-sized grain of salt here. But Jesus said, quote, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So did you catch it? They continued on until the day that Noah entered the ark. Well, when you read earlier in Genesis 7, we see, quote, Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep their seed alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth. So Noah entered the ark seven days before the rains came. So Jesus said that the end would be similar to the days of Noah where everything was normal until Noah entered the ark, which was seven days before the rains. Now, Jesus didn't say until the rain started or until the flood came. He said until Noah entered the ark. So could that mean that in the end, however that's going to work, there will be a period of calm before the storm, a period of unease and anticipation that something is happening, something is coming. I don't know. Like I said, I'm probably reading way too much into this. That's most likely. But it is interesting how the, this was phrased, right? Okay, well, that's enough for this week. I'll need you to ponder these things, get me some answers, and respond back in the form of an essay by next week. Remember to cite your sources, check your grammar, correct your spelling, or just shoot me an email with your thoughts. Whatever. I'm pretty laid back, to be honest. Okay, bye. <laughs>